Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Veronica Ryan is a sculptor whose fascinating career spans more than four decades, but whose biggest career moment may well come in 2021. Born in Montserrat, as a young child in the 50s, she emigrated with her family to the UK. After leaving art college in the 70s, she went on to further her studies at the Slade and at the School of African and Oriental Art, and in the intervening years has added a slew of group and solo shows to her name notably taking part in the seminal Thin Black Line show at the ICA in the early 80s, which celebrated black and Asian female artists. She was artist in residence at Tate's and Ives during the late 90s, when she worked in the former studio of Barbara Hepworth, one of her major influences, where she reworked marble gifted to her by the Hepworth estate, pieces which are now among several of hers in the permanent collection at the Tate. In the 90s, she moved to New York, where she resides today and from where she spoke to me in July 2020 to talk about two big upcoming moments in her career. A major permanent commission in East London to commemorate the UK's Windrush immigrants and an exhibition on Spike Island in Bristol, a hotspot in the recent statues debate. Tell me more about what you were saying about the, um, you know, Trump and what it feels like there. Because to us, I mean, I don't know when you were last back in the UK, but it just sounds like this really febrile um, environment and really just sounds really edgy. This combination of the Black Lives Matter protests, um, people being protesting about lockdown, the elections coming up, it just seems... It just it seems like a sort of weird hell. <laughs> it is. It feels really apocalyptic. And that yeah, yeah. into some of the things I've been thinking about as well. But the quarantine part, I didn't mind because I work a bit like that anyhow. And it's sometimes difficult to come out of my kind of exiled working state to be outside. But the, the, the part of that was is that it was this sort of totally unreal situation where you could feel safe inside but watching the news and knowing what was going on outside and the whole of New York there was no one on the streets and that was so peculiar it's a bit like a de Curico painting um, but so it's a strange apocalyptic thing happening where you've, you've thought you were you could be safe in quarantine but you knew it was a false kind of reality um trump is i feel trying to push um towards there being riots he's trying to push towards race riots um i mean i'm quite interested in um psychopathy and you know abuse on different kinds of levels and for us to be actually witnessing this on this global scale because he is impacting the rest of the world and um, let's hope he doesn't he isn't re-elected because it it will begin to stabilize some of the other 
countries. Um, it's interesting what you were saying about how the quarantine didn't feel like such a big leap for you in terms of your where you were. Um, I was going to ask if you'd been, were you still going to the studio or were you working from home? What form did so that take So in fact, I um, live and work in the same place while I'm here. And, and I've always found that to, to, for me to be the most lucid way that I work because I sleep badly or if I wake up early or if um, something's going on and I'm not sleeping, I might get up and do something, make a cup of tea and have a look at something and then try to go back to sleep. So it's always, even as a student, I often took things home to work on. So it's just always been the way um, that I've worked. And I, some things wouldn't get made or organized if I always had to wait to go to a separate space. Um, when I'm doing projects, I, of course, go to a, a, a studio space, but I always still have things at home. So I often have a, a rucksack with and bags of tons of things that I transport back and forth. And um, I learned to drive when I did a residency um, in Cambridge in Kettle's Yard, um, because after a while I, there, there was so much stuff and then there were bits of bronze and so on. Um, so I learned to drive so that I could move things back and forth in the hatchback. Um, so I haven't driven for a long time, so I, I haven't got that facility. And, and also, I mean, it's just not practical driving in, in New York, in Manhattan. You're talking to me now from your home slash studio space. No, well, I'm in, Porter, uh, I'm in Paula Cooper Gallery. Paula showed my work um, when I, in, I think it was 92, I was in a group show. And then last September, um, I had my own exhibition in the gallery, and and then Paula took me on. So that's been really fantastic. Um, and, and what is it about Paula that was particularly appealing to you? Why did you decide that she was the right gallerist or gallery to go with? There was a period in the 80s where I started to feel anxious that people were um, only connecting the work with kind of organic forms and, and I felt that it wasn't really understanding that the, the organic kind of manifestation was part of the conversation that there was a kind of, that I've always been interested in um, uh, kind of the underpinnings of things and about, you know, kind of psychological resonances and so on and language. And there was a moment where I was anxious because I felt that the work was being taken outside of my control in certain ways. So one of the things that was nice about Paula coming to the studio, and she was relating to a lot of the seeds um, in the work. And it, it, it kind of gave me a confidence again about the organic side of the work when she was relating to the seeds and so on and to the organic structure that I, um, in a way, had wanted to distance myself from. And it just seemed a moment where it all made sense all over again. Um, 
So that's that's part of what's been happening. This podcast, The Collector's House, has a special format where um, we have a cabinet in the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London, and we always ask the speaker on the guest on the podcast to describe the objects they put into that cabinet that sort of best represent them, sort of like an old-fashioned cabinet of curiosities. So one of the things I would have in the cabinet would be a capsule of different kinds of seeds. Um, I'm also quite interested in tropical seeds, and one of the things I've been doing is trying to germinate seeds on the kind of um, trying to see if I could get them to germinate in humid or very warm conditions. So um, when I did a project in St. Ives, I um, wasn't there uh, long enough to um, get things to germinate. And so one of the things that um, I've been interested in with some of the projects I've been doing in different locations is um, planting things and seeing, um, you know, as a way of a, a kind of continuity with different places, different locations I've been in. I'm also curious about the, the term cabinet of curiosities because I always really wonder what that means because um, it could, um, that some of the work I've made on shells more recently, a project I did at Tate, um, the Art House in uh, 2017, some people were describing some of the objects on the shelves as kind of cabinet of curiosities. And I would have liked to have asked them exactly what they meant, because to me it means I, I have a very um, particular understanding of what that means and it doesn't necessarily coincide with my perception of the meaning. So um, so I, I, one of my questions was to you was exactly what you mean by that and why you termed it um, cabinet of curiosities. I mean this idea of a cabinet of curiosities it is it does seem to be a sort of particularly resonant idea and it's it feels sort of victorian in a way this like do you know like there's the romance of that and i you imagine it like well i do anyway you imagine something that you might see at the victorian albert museum maybe in london a kind of beautiful victorian style ornate cabinet filled with these i don't know i sort of think of you know insects that have been or little things that have been mummified or fossils or slightly almost there's something slightly almost yeah that's sort of antiquarian a bit creepy a bit spooky maybe i don't know yeah no because um that makes sense to me because it um my mum when we were growing up had cabinets with things you know usually her best china and things that we couldn't touch and then she would have kind of ornaments on top and um, and I realised that some of my interest in objects come from some of those early experiences with my mum's objects, things that didn't necessarily make sense to me. I see that um, things are coming up in my work that remind me of my mother's choice of objects. And although my objects are different, 
there's something about the act of choosing something and giving it a, its own special place in a on a cabinet, for instance. And so um, my mum, and, and connecting back with Victoriana and so on, that whole period where people started making lace um, and, you know, those kind of, and, and the French still have them in, I suppose, in country houses. I, in, in um, Bristol in the market, um, I, I started collecting some of the crocheted, there's doily, are they a doily? Is doily that? kinds of things, yes, exactly. Yeah. I love those. And so there's one in one of my um, sculptures, and my mum has given me one that she um, crocheted. And I remembered um, at one point my mum and my aunt crocheting these doily things, and they take forever because you crochet them on these really fine knee, um, crochet hooks. And then my mum would, they would um, dip them, once they finished them, they dipped them in starch, ironed them, and then they made a structure. And I just think, oh my goodness, I was learning about structures and making things at, at a young age, unsuspectingly. Um, and I, I just love the way that you iron them, and then they become these kind of um, quite tight, structures and so one of the things I've been doing is collecting some of these and I, I, I'm doing that at the moment but I'm also um, dyeing them with turmeric um, I did listen to um, Nina Cherry talk about drinking her turmeric tea uh -huh. and I thought that was interesting of course because it's one of the spices that is um, a lot of us are thinking we, we have to um, have more in our food and so on and yeah. so it turns the doily sort of a yellow orangey yellow color is that what you're after yeah exactly because um some of the work i was making at the the art house i was making tie-dyeing with commercial dyes and then i um i was trying to find dyes that didn't have chemicals in which is almost impossible even if they say they're natural and so on um, they were making me unwell. I, I was getting, you could feel it in your throat, and it was, um, um, so I was quite interested in that indigo colour, and that indigo is a natural um, pigment in, in the soil in Japanese um, traditional um, um, fabric tie-dye and in African tie-dyeing. And so then I started to think about using natural um, dyes and turmeric really colours straight away. You don't need very much of it to get these variations of colour. So I've been using that in some of the work that I'm going to have in my spike exhibition. You're the first person actually I've been talking to other than people in the gallery about some of the work that's going to be in the exhibition. Um, Can I just stop you there and for people who will be listening to this I don't I have to say I don't know anything about it because I haven't been told anything so when you say spike could you just explain a bit about what it is when it's going to open and then we can maybe talk about some of the ideas or some of the hopefully some of the work you're doing towards it so okay let me be begin to explain about spike I was um, awarded one of the Freelands the Freelands award in uh, 
18, yeah, 2018. And so that was, that award was in conjunction with Spike Island in Bristol. And so um, I was going to have my exhibition there in September, and then that's been put for, um, forward because of this whole catastrophe we're in. And so my exhibition's going to be in January. I've been crocheting a lot actually during the quarantine period. I've been making these structures which are going to, that I could roll up and they're going to sort of stretch across one of the, the large galleries. So they'll be occupying space, but the space will be um, interrupted with these long crochet. I'm using, I've been crocheting with um, fishing line. Um, I've been interested in the fact that there are quite a number of fishing, um, um, you know, the boats along the, the river in Bristol, so a lot of people are fishing around there. And so there are shops, yachting shops, that have a lot of the fishing, um, the yachting and sailing paraphernalia. And so um, I've been using fishing line to, um, that I've been crocheting with and making these long structures. And so some of them have seeds in them. So some of these structures are just going to um, and I'm not sure what it's going to look like yet. I'm just imagining and configuring that I'm going to have... Some of these are very long and they're going to just stretch across the, one of the large galleries so that um, they become part of this kind of spatial... That one is interacting with this kind of spatial... Um, interruption with very fine the the crocheted pieces are about um, an inch um, wide I'm kind of interested in the idea that one could have this full space with something that's not that doesn't have a lot of volume um, so that's one of the pieces I make in, and um... it's quite interesting that it's, you're having an exhibition in Bristol. I mean, Bristol such a is a you know it's, it's a point of interest right now because of the around the statues debate. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I first had an exhibition at the um, Arnolfini. It was my first one-woman exhibition in eighty. 6, 80, 85, 86, and I, of course, knew about a general sense of the history of Bristol and Liverpool and so on, but my work was um, not coming from that historical background, but spending time in Bristol, I have been to the, um, um, Gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the house, the, one of the slave owners' houses. Um, I've been trying to work out in my mind what's different about the history of slavery in Britain and America. And America, of course, had slaves in America. And in Britain, the um, Colston and other slave owners, they had plantations in 
the Caribbean and got their slaves from West Africa and so on. And um, but you know, so I, I was really disturbed to see that one of these slave owners um, had um, you know plantations in Antigua and St Kitts, which is quite close to where I was born in Montserrat. So I have been aware much more of the fact that there's a lot of sugar and that has been um, transported back to Bristol, um, you know, uh, from the plantations, and that cocoa is very much part of um, the heritage in Bristol, and that, um, the, in fact, Quaker, the Quakers were the first people to, who made chocolate, um, um, Cadbury's chocolate, you know, the, the, the Easter egg, those little Easter eggs that um, the Quakers were the first people to, to um, produce Easter eggs. Part of my work is sort of incorporating part of what I've been finding out about Bristol. And, and you've also been um, commissioned to create a statue to commemorate Windrush. Um, and when you mentioned produce, that made me think of that because I believe that you are creating some pieces that represent fruit and vegetables. Um, can you talk a bit about um, what you're what you're working on for that? I think I believe it's going to be unveiled next year in in Hackney in East London. So it's the statue to commemorate Windrush. Well, it's interesting, when I was first approached two years ago, before um, this whole situation with statues have, um, you, you know, unleashed itself. And, um, and that's very interesting, because, um, you, you know, the, the, on top of the figures, monuments, and... Um, and I'm Do you agree with that, by the way? Do you think it's the right approach? Um, I could see that immediately after, in that whole midst of um, demonstrations with Black Lives Matter um, and people being at home um, for a period of time and, you know, we had this kind of, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, this moment where I felt that people understood on a different level this whole um, question of injustice. And so I could understand and have sympathy with how Colston was toppled down because this debate has been, it's one of the things I was aware of in Bristol is that there's been a debate going on for a number of years about um, Colston and then a lot of the streets the schools have um, um, days that commemorate and they have a bun, which is a constant bun and all kinds of paraphernalia in Bristol directly connected with Colston. And so I think that this is something that should have been addressed before the statue was toppled down. You know, history at school didn't ever teaches that you know this whole um period of colonialism we were i often wondered why i was bored in history because we just learned dates of kings and queens and we, we learned about 1066 but none of this 
was reflected in any kind of um, how it connected with the society in which people lived and what the connections were with you, you know other kinds of interaction and happenings and so um, whilst in general I don't think it's the best way to just topple things over I understand the Colston being toppled in this way um, because people have been very frustrated decisions haven't been made it's been um, debated and nothing's happened and so I to me it looks like an important historical moment of an art moment um, and I I think now that it's toppled down that maybe that plinth should remain empty because I can't see that what's going to replace it no one's going to be satisfied it's always going to be a big problem and um i like the idea well the other thing i think could work is something like the fourth plinth in trafalgar square where there's a competition and something is put there for a period of time otherwise i think it should just be left empty um i like the idea that all the placards Black Lives Matter, and that those are put in the, the museum alongside Colston, and that's an important historical moment. So what worries me is um, the other extreme of that, that you would then have right wing, um, the, the right wing coming and toppling everything that's replaced that is trying to establish a, a sort of social justice. So I think going forward, there needs to be consensus and debate and um, about what's replaced and how it comes down. It will take longer, but I think that's in the end the right way to go. Um, and then just coming back to your work, why do you, and I want to come back to your Windrush piece because I feel like we've left it, but why do you feel it's more um, why, why do you represent things in an abstract way rather than you wouldn't do a literal representation of a human being on a plinth if you were commissioned to do something like that? So I've always worked in, in an abstract mode and I wouldn't feel that to suddenly make a representation of someone would make sense because it's not the history of how I work. Um, I also think that um, there are different ways to represent um, cultural um, diversity. So tell me, tell me about the windrush objects, your, your sculpture. Tell me what the objects are and why you chose them. Okay, so, all right, to be specific and not keep meandering off. All right, so um, I'm fascinated by tropical fruit, um, uh, not only tropical fruit, I'm fascinated by the way when you're looking at pumpkins and marrows and um, you know they're growing on the on the ground with these thin little stems and then you have these huge bulbous things which are fantastic and um, there's something really magical about them but I think it's also because um, uh, 
my mother um, would buy some, we lived it, we grew up in Watford for a long period, then we lived in London and so on. But, um, and we spent a little bit of time in Montserrat where I was born and I'm intrigued in, by um, fruit and vegetables that grow in different kinds of climates. And I'm fascinated by the fact of historically how fruit and vegetables have moved from one climate to the other and then they've, they thrive in the climate that they're happiest in. Vegetables, my mother, when she could find them, would buy things like um, breadfruit and sweet potatoes. Of course, now they're in most shops. You could get them in Tesco's and um, Sainsbury's and so on. But when I was little, you had to go to Ridley Road Market or Notting Hillgate, Brixton, and seen some of these fruit and vegetable, which I didn't necessarily think as, of them as food. They were just these really interesting shapes and, and then my mum would cook them and we would eat them. And because we had grown up with um, what they were called Irish potatoes when I was little, um, it was interesting becoming accustomed to this different kind of flavour. And so when we went to Montserrat, that was the first time I'd seen a sugar apple. They were called, you know, they're slightly different names, sugar apples, custard apples, and so on. And, and I didn't like them at first because they were so sweet and sickly and different to eating um, British apples, um, European apples that it actually took a while to become accustomed to this different kind of texture. So it probably has something to do with childhood memories as well and becoming um, the way that children are excited by lots of different things. And um, so part of that is thinking about um, the Windrush and um, generation and people who've left their homeland to come to a different climate post Second World War and there's a lot of poverty and deprivation and so on and people left, um, people in general even just thinking about my family because my mum, um, I came over with my mother when I was one and a half and I remember particular things about um, my parents' memory and um, so it's something to do with thinking about Hackney, about Ridley Road Market, about Hackney having a, a, a big um, West, Af uh, West Indian community and African as well and Indian community and thinking about those early experiences and that food and the structures um, seem to me to be quite a nice way to make representations of um, a familiar, uh, something familiar. So that's my way of celebrating um, a diverse cultural um, representation in terms of food. Um, 
planning to make two of them in bronze and one in marble. Um, so I'm working with a foundry, Pangolin Foundry in Stroud. Bronze, I mean, because the, the structures are going to be outside and they have to last a long time and so on, they need to be in, um, and I, I actually quite like bronze. I, I love the Benin bronzes and that whole period, so that over a period of time, um, it, it might develop certain kinds of patina and but also thinking about structures that if kids want to sit on them um, that they're not going to collapse or that it's so that they you know they're, they're children friendly as well so that's um so the scale of them will part of it is thinking about the scale and um, that they can resonate on lots of different levels. And I know we haven't talked a lot about some of the other cabinet of curiosities. Oh, I, was, I was wondering, going back to the cabinet, I felt like we should sort of maybe consolidate it or we should like, because we, we, all your ideas have been so pulling from so many different reference points, it would be really nice to house them. And not that you want to be defined in any way, I'm sure, but... Well, um, what I put are all my tools. So my tools would be crochet hooks, my knitting needles, and my modelling um, tools, and my chisels. I like the idea that these domestic tools would be housed with the, um, you, you know, mixing domestic, this whole notion of what's domestic and what's, um, you know, um, what, what would be the other word? Mixing up tools, I mean utensils and tools and so on. So I would have tools as one of the um, of, um, manifestations and photographs of my daughters at various stages and, and I would have fabrics. Um, my mother, her house is practically full of fabrics and all her sewing um, um, paraphernalia. Um, I love the way um, thread is on the stool, you know, the stools and uh, the different shapes of, and the different colours. Um, my mother never had, never wore makeup, but I'd be, someone else was asking, in a different project, was asking about uh, my mother's jewellery box. I said, well, she never wore jewellery or had a jewellery box, but I was fascinated by her sewing paraphernalia, you, you know, so needles, I'm fascinated by needles, all the different sizes and so on. So that would be one of my um, curios, sewing paraphernalia. Um, so though that, so though, uh, the other thing is my phone, my um, smartphone, where I could access um, periodicals, books, music, contact with um, the world. Um, it would never have occurred to me that technology would be one of my um, favourite modes because you have all these different facilities that could, that's combined in one tablet. Um, so those, those are the things I would have in my cabinet of curiosities. Well, thank you for sharing them with me. Thank you so much for talking to me.
That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.